Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. And after the Second World War, all of the chemical companies that had been making chemical weapons for the war, their post-war pivot was into textiles. And so that's when big oil got involved in textile production and spun polymers became the wave of the future, which is what we're basically drowning in right now. So that's the bad news, right? The good news is that we actually have the power to change that. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Friday, another episode of the Good Dirt Podcast. Yes, it's a warm and breezy night here at the farm. And if you can hear any of the wonderful night sounds in the background, it's because we're currently sitting out here on the porch. I just love all the summer insect sounds. I find it so nostalgic. When I was growing up in the 60s, we played outside every night until dark. We played kick the can and ran around the yards and the grass and hid under bushes. And it was really fun. I have similar memories. Growing up in the 90s in the suburbs, (laughs) I do remember being just always dreading the call, the dinner. There wasn't like a dinner bell, but you would call out for dinner to come inside or someone's mom would and it was end all the fun. Yeah. 
Do you remember, though, how all those kids kind of lived in the same area and sometimes two or three kids would just come and sleep over? Yeah. Just because it was so close and it was yeah. fun. It was really fun. Yeah, and we'd wake up the next morning and have pancakes and, yeah, so sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, summer nights, they're the best. But getting into today's episode, which is really fun, I'm really excited to introduce it. Some of you, good dear listeners, might recognize Heidi Barr as a past guest on this podcast. And the other guest today is Emma DeLong. This was the first time I met her, was this interview. And really, the Pennsylvania Flax Project is just such a dream come true for us because, as you might know if you're a listener, my mom and I started Lady Farmer with the idea of creating a line of sustainable clothing. And our idea was domestically grown linen. And we tell the story in this interview, but I won't ruin it now. I'll just say that that was not a possibility six years ago. Yeah. So today's guests are both the creators of the Pennsylvania Flax Project. Some of you might remember our conversation with Heidi earlier about her company, Kitchen Garden Textiles. And today she's joined by Emma DeLong, who is her partner in the Pennsylvania Flax Project. Emma DeLong also runs Knee High Farm. That's of note. Yes. And she is a lady farmer. Totally. So their story as a team begins on March 12th, 2020, when the two met to have a conversation about a natural dye project using Heidi's linen textiles and the indigo that Emma was growing on her farm. And their chat quickly turned into an enthusiastic musing about the possibilities of Pennsylvania-grown linen, and the Pennsylvania Flax Project began. And y'all, this is super exciting because, Mom, you were so excited about getting some flax to grow and you just showed me the other day on a little walk about the garden it's out there yes so you will also hear in this episode about their square yard project which i have been participating in this summer i was just out there today checking on my flax and you're going to hear about that as well so we'll stop beating around the bush and let you guys just listen this is such a special one and we can't wait to introduce you to the pennsylvania flax project and so here's heidi and emma We are Heidi Barr and Emma DeLong, and we each have our own businesses. Emma DeLong actually has multiple other businesses, but collectively we are the Pennsylvania Flax Project. And we met in 2019 through a mutual friend who suggested that I, as a textile artist, might create a linen wedding dress for Emma DeLong, which I, in fact, never did. Uh, (laughs) However... (laughs) Within one hour of meeting, we basically decided, hey, let's plant an eighth of an acre of flax for linen and this farm and see what happened. And here we are. Wow. <laughs> so happened. That's so exciting. So what is the Pennsylvania Flax Project? Well, it's a lot of things right now. We're still a little bit in newborn phase. We're in year three of research and development. And that meaning that that first year that Heidi explained that we met each other, we just kind of geeked out on how amazing linen is and how messed up the textile industry is and how much history and culture is in Pennsylvania around linen production and how it doesn't exist anymore in the United States at all. And I remember just feeling so fired up, like coming there and being like, I want a wedding dress <laughs> and then leaving like, we're going to change the world. <laughs> and um, it just kind of spiraled from there, a deep drive, I think coming mostly from 
this kind of angst around climate change and like the extremes we're feeling. And, you know, that was in the beginning of the pandemic and Heidi was experiencing issues with customs and receiving <laughs> linen from Lithuania and not having an alternative. And I was experiencing weather climate changes on the farm. And we were just like, wow, we need to do something. <laughs> And so I think the response to that was just like, let's just do exactly that. Let's do something. Let's plant some flax. Let's see how it grows in this region. And there wasn't really, I mean, we had kind of an inkling of where this project could go. Like when Heidi and I spoke, Heidi was like, my vision is to grow flax in Pennsylvania, large scale and create a linen industry in the United States. And I was like, that's mm -hmm. a big dream. How can we plug in? <laughs> And I think we just, we were like, let's grow it. Let's see. Because like people are growing it in the U.S. for flax seed and flax oil, but for textiles, there's no infrastructure. So um, we grew it and then it just snowballed out of control. And I feel like it's, this year is really where it's taking shape. And we're really like, okay, we've grown it. We've networked. We've connected. We've had dinners in the field. People have fallen in love with the plant. Whoever sees the plant is like, I need to grow this. <laughs> That's very seductive. <laughs> yeah, I think like for us, like that big dream was really to see this big problem, the huge problem of textiles and synthetic textiles, and it's a big one, but also to see that there is a solution, right? I mean, we were like, oh, we don't have to invent something new. We just have to bring the resources to bear to bring this industry, in fact, back to where we live mm -hmm. right and that uh, you know aside from the millions of dollars it's going to take is achievable yeah. right and so then when you start to go i love what emma always says about that the money of it she says just it's only a mm -hmm. number and so once you just accept that i'm going to be when people say oh what's that going to take and you just learn to say you know five million dollars as soon as you just accept that that's just a number and then in reality it's not actually yeah. that much money right there's no shortage it's relative world <laughs> it's just not invested in the fact yeah yet so i'll throw in here very quickly a story i've told on here and apologies to listeners that have already heard this but when emma and i first started lady farmer 2016 and we went to the big magic it's called Magic, the big trade show for fabrics. And we walked in this huge, huge showroom. It was enormous. And we said, okay, where's the American made linen? That's what we want. I mean, that's what we, we didn't know. And they, oh, well, there's not any. And we're like, oh. It was fascinating. The people's faces like, like, that never occurred to them. Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I don't know if that exists. Like, if we talked to a few people who were like, I'm not sure. And then finally, we got to someone who was like, oh, honeys. Yes. I don't know. No. <laughs> and we were like. What? <laughs> We're like the naivest of the naive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, here we have flown all the way out to Las Vegas without knowing this fact. Yeah. And I do have a good friend who last week texted me, hey, Emma, where do I find American made linen? Let's talk about that. So like the textile industry is this huge global biomet, you know, and people don't understand how it works. And even people who are working in sustainable textile space don't understand that Flax, first of all, you know, why you can't find any in the United States is because cotton overtook it in terms of a textile because it was both subsidized by slave labor, but also the advent of the cotton gin, which made it very easy to separate the seed from the bowls and get it ready for spinning, sort of occurred historically at a moment in time before 
mechanization of the processing of blacks really occurred. And so it just sort of got a leg up financially. It's all money, you know, it's all about short story. It's because we value things by dollars only. (laughs) So like that happened. And then fast forward a little bit. And after the second world war, all of the chemical companies that had been making chemical weapons for the war, their post-war pivot was into textiles. And so that's when Big oil got involved in textile production and spun polymers became the wave of the future, which is what we're basically drowning in right now. We're drowning in it. Literally, the ocean is full of microfibers left off from those petroleum-based textiles, and it's killing our ocean. In our bloodstream. And, and it's in and a recent article. Yes. It's also piling up in landfills and, you know, off-gassing greenhouse gases but also it just doesn't biodegrade so it's just like literally mountains of discarded textiles so that's the bad news right (laughs) the good news is that we actually have the power to change that there is an alternative to spun polymers and we can grow it in the united states and we're actually poised for a resurgence in this industry here because of the amount of landmass we have and the climates that we have that are conducive to growing flax, we are becoming a very attractive alternative to European sources, you know, partly due to climate change there, but also just because we're big geographically. Yeah. I think that what you're saying is that question of like, where is the American made linen? I think that so many people have the concept that we can produce anything in America. You know, of course we can. We're a huge world power. And the reality is there's producers like Heidi who make linen textiles, but they're sourcing the linen from other places. And so I think educating people on closing those loops and like it's awesome to support a business like Kitchen Garden Textiles where you're supporting one person sourcing sustainable linen from elsewhere because that's the only option now. But what if we could make that shift and have it all domestic and just close those loops. I mean, the effect would be huge. (laughs) I think it's important to point out and give perspective to the fact that the absence of American grown linen is a very, very recent phenomenon. And I I think you referred to this, Heidi, if you even go back before in the early part of the 20th century, before the wars, it was part of the American homestead landscape. Now, how much it was scaled up, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Has linen historically been sort of a homestead, backyard kind of produce estate? I will say state like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they of course produced linen. But was it ever scaled up to a degree that people could order it from someone domestically, do you know? Or has it always been kind of a, I won't say cottage, a a very local thing? It was a major industry. I mean, it was like 700 families or something that were working in that industry. In In Pennsylvania. What time period is this? Early 20th, 19th? In the like 19th century. That's when textiles were the number one American industries. Isn't that accurate? Right. And Philadelphia was a huge textile Mm -hmm. hub. Where you live, Heidi, you're like in real housing. Yeah, I live in mm-hmm. housing in Philadelphia right now. Like I live in Maniac, which was where most of the textile mills were right along the river. In fact, I visited the Wick Estate, which is in Germantown. And I asked if flax was one of the crops originally grown there. And I said, how big was this estate? And I think they said it was like 500 acres or something. And they said it went from here to the river. And I went, oh, 
it in public oh, yeah. right? And so, which is amazing to think about. But like four of the original 13 colonizing families in Germantown, Pennsylvania were in fact in the linen trade and they made fabric. I mean, that was their it was their work. They grew and created linen. You're right, Mary. It was definitely a really important part of the homestead in that when people were basically subsistence mm-hmm. farming, right? It was an important crop. It, each Every family would grow somewhere between a half of an acre and four acres for their own personal use for sorts of clothing, like undergarments, kitchen textiles, mm-hmm. bedding, things that are really appropriate for linen because of its antibacterial, antimicrobial mm-hmm. properties making it a great fabric for those things. And then even to the extent that like, if a woman was widowed, she would lose her land, but she was granted a half an acre so that she could grow her flax. So she wow. would have But it was also part of the early textile industry here in a significant way. Yeah, the Germantown seal has a flax flower mm-hmm. seed. It's very much incorporated in specifically Germantown. So how about at that point in time, too, when the industry was pretty well established, that what was that infrastructure like? Did they have, I mean, we know us four here talking know the labor-intensive production process from plant to fiber. So are there, I guess, and that's kind of what you guys are working on, you know, you sort of have to do it all by hand to figure out how it works. But were there the machines and the infrastructure at that point to do it on a large scale? It's, it's tricky because it's like a long time ago. But what was that like? I mean, I can only imagine. You wouldn't probably know better. Heidi, but in terms of the scale that Heidi and I are looking towards, which is like hundreds, if not thousands of acres of flax being grown, I don't think there was the same kind of like harvesting equipment or processing equipment necessarily. Everything changes. Do you know, Heidi, more about the industrial side of it at that time? Yeah. How did the Pennsylvania linen people process it? What kind of machines did they have? And are any of those machines being utilized in the United States today? We've talked to Chico Flax, and I know they're kind of beginning some of the introduction to some of the machines. So talk about that a little bit. So I don't know specifically for certain about what existed Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. That's part of our ongoing research. I could say though, generally as things industrialized, what was created for processing Mm -hmm. flax into spinnable fiber is pretty much the same sort of equipment that is used to do that today. And it's pretty much just a mechanized version of the colonial era hand tools. So what had been used would be called a sketch mill and it was either driven with water or, I mean, usually that was the power source. It was water driven. So it was like could be driven with a wheel and it's just a series of gears that breaks the woody core away from the fiber and then a series of combs that separates it and cleans it more fully. And then it would go to be spun. And I really don't know. I sort of haven't gotten to that step in our research. Pennsylvania Flax Project is not looking to spin mm. Interesting. the fiber. We're looking at a raw materials mill that would take it from seed to what's called sketched fiber, which would be ready mm. to spin. And let somebody else deal with it. What? And what is that something like? Are you just like, having, we'll cross that bridge? <laughs> yeah, as now it's exporting to either Europe or another mm. country that has that. Okay. It's just, it's sort of a matter of going from like, we're going to make linen to, we actually want to be able to accomplish. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But it's really hard to understand for someone who hasn't actually gone through the process or understands like how many steps it is to produce these things. And so just on a very basic level, it's like, well, they're doing this in Lithuania. 
So why can't we just do what they do and build a factory here? What do you say to that? Well, we can. Yeah, that's our fault. <laughs> but we need millions of dollars. Heidi and Emma <laughs> need to do their part, get that going, and then... So let's just go back up a little bit and talk about yeah. that. Yes. First of all, flax is linen, and linen is flax. You grow the crop, and in some ways, this is the easy part because it's pretty darn easy to grow. It's like a 100-day crop. It can fit nicely into a rotation on a diversified farm. It can replace other commodity crops that are high input. So you grow it out, you harvest it, not so easy. It has to be pulled up by the root. It has a short root, so that might sound easy, but doing it by hand, it's like pulling up blades of grass. It's incredibly difficult. And so you need to harvest equipment. It's specifically for flax. It has like little pines on the front. It grabs it, pulls it up, and lays it back down on the field for the next step, which is called redding, which is a process of letting the moisture from either rain or dew and the enzymes in the soils break down the pectins and lignins in the plant to separate the woody core from the fiber which is going to be spun into yarns so you let it ret and then you take that redded flax straw this is where you take it to the mill you take it to what's called a sketch mill where you break it you sketch it and you hackle it and that's what then you end up with what's called sketched fiber sketch long line fiber you also end up with some byproducts all of which have value and that is ready to be spun into yarn that can be woven into linen. So we can do that here. In order to do that here, there's no equipment existing in the United States. And I feel like I could say that like pretty confidently. Like we've talked to people across the country who are on the same path. And the only thing that anybody's found that's like still some sort of serviceable equipment is fiber revolution out in Oregon liberated a harvester from a museum and they're having it refurbished and they'll be harvesting with it hopefully this year. But there's no mill equipment. And this is the harvester that you just described that's specifically for pulling up these blades of grass flax plants. Okay. Mm -hmm. yep. So you guys don't have that yet. You don't have harvester? We don't have any equipment. We don't even have the seed to grow it on scale. Yeah. <laughs> like we're back at step one. We're back on regionalized and seed variety grow it out for seeds so that it's economically viable to grow at scale. So tell us about the Pennsylvania Flax project that you've begun this year and how that got started and how it's going. Well, it started two years ago when we planted the flax at Nehi Farm, my farm. Well, we decided to plant an eighth acre just because that's how much land I, I was like, hey, I have an eighth of an acre that's I'm not using for veggies. Like, let's grow it. And then we felt like growing it was an amazing education opportunity for people to learn about this plant so we coordinated different events like a weeding event and Heidi made flax inspired cocktails and we had a picnic <laughs> event and we hosted a dinner and so we just we invited people to be like this is the plant touch it experience it and we talked what we're talking about on this podcast about how flat linen is made from flax in the fiber industry. So the word started to get spread. Year two was a little more of the same, except for we expanded into inviting other growers in to join us and to grow their own plot of flax. So we had four or four or six collaborators in the Philadelphia area in New Jersey. And we just kind of shared experiences. And there was a hurricane midsummer, so we shared that experience. <laughs> And we had another dinner. So 
we just kind of grew this. And meanwhile, we're making connections with Fiber Evolution in Oregon and reaching out to other people, you know, Chico Flax, other people involved in this journey. And then this year, that idea of having other growers participate in this journey, we've expanded it to 60 participants. Mary, you yeah. one of them. <laughs> And that's called the Square Yard Project. Heidi, do you want to talk a little bit? That's your like beautiful brainchild. (laughs) (laughs) My very large brainchild. The Square Yard Project is both a sort of seed trial Mm -hmm. research project as well as a community art and education project. And basically the idea is that participants each will plant one square yard of flax for linen. So it's 36 inches by 36 inches, which was chosen partly because of the poetry of planting a fiber crop in a measure that is a usual measure of the mm-hmm. cloth, but also partly because it's so incredibly accessible for people. It's a very small area to grow. So anybody can do it from like a small city backyard to a large farm. And also it's small enough that for the data collection portion of the project, it's pretty easy for any individual to sort of collect information on that scale. So Emma and Miranda created this really wonderful database to collect information about the seed. So we'll like measure the benchmarks of the crop. Each participant will record like when they planted, what the weather was, when it germinate, when it's five inches tall, when they weed it, how much weed pressure, when does it bloom, how long does it bloom, when is it ready for harvest, and then specifics on like, did we ask people to weigh it? Yeah, we did. We didn't address this the weighing scale question, but <laughs> weigh yourself and then hold the hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, put it on your kitchen scale because this our yard. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay. <laughs> And that way we can collect a lot of data about how this seed variety performs in a large number of microclimates mm-hmm. in our region. And that will sort of feed into our knowledge for scaling this project next year. It's really R&D, like you're really just observing. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit like the cart is yeah. turning over the horse. <laughs> We're doing R&D and flirting yeah. and bailing at the same time. That's the interesting thing. And I think why... A lot of people haven't taken this on is because it all needs to culminate Mm -hmm. at the same time. You need the seed, you need the growers, you need the processing, and you need the growers. So it's it just you have to set it up in a strategic way so that nobody's losing money or being cheap. Oh, interesting. You mean it's like a business, like a front (laughs) capital? Weird. (laughs) Like, why is this so hard? Yeah. I mean, I think certainly our government, you know, we talk to people in different countries and our government doesn't see value in it because I don't know why. I'm like, I'm like, there's monetary value. So why is Because the system in place does just fine on all the linen from Northern Europe. Well, and all the cotton and all the chemical, you know, the chemical companies are doing just fine selling all the pesticides yeah people are happy making their money and that brings up a question i have in the linen the flax growing industry in northern europe and those places is there a heavy use of chemicals i mean it doesn't really compare with the chemical and pesticide use in cotton growing does it no not even close it doesn't require a lot of inputs Mm -hmm. even like commodity food crops like corn and soy It doesn't need those same levels of nitrogen or pest control or any of that. That's another reason it's probably not encouraged on a big scale because, you know, those companies want the farmers to have to buy all this stuff to 
have good crops. And so it's really not encouraged to grow things that don't take a lot of these synthetic inputs. And it's not subsidized right. by our government. Like a lot of the crops that we grow don't make mm-hmm. money. <laughs> you know, like farmers operate at a loss, but the government pays them. Yes, there's way too much corn. <laughs> right. I was going to say earlier, like Lennon doesn't have a very strong lobbying group in D.C., right? Whereas petrol comes <laughs> It's so fascinating. Although it's funny because I met Angela from Fiber Revolution. I went to D.C. to meet her a couple weeks ago. And she was there with a group of organic producers basically lobbying for organics. Cool. So it's growing. That lobbying group is growing, which is good. Like, that's part of what we need to do. We need to put pressure on our government. Yeah, and there's money there, too. Like, you know, we're looking at grants right now through USDA. There's billions of dollars for climate solution, you know, alternatives. Mm -hmm. And it's just, the money is... Yeah, it seems like it it just hasn't clicked for government or the powers that be yet. This soil mitigation and the health of the soil is a real viable solution and correct me if I'm wrong I'm operating under the understanding that growing more crops like flax with the minimal inputs can really help heal the soil and improve the health of the soil is that correct in the right way yeah absolutely I mean the carbon sequestration is such a hot topic right now Mm -hmm. a ton of people are excited and hot on hemp because of that potential but there's so many issues that we've come across with hemp also one of them literally being hot Mm -hmm. like THC yeah (laughs) so this you know flax is an incredible alternative to hemp I mean hemp's amazing fiber as well but flax you don't have to jump through all those hoops i do think hemp is good however as a textile flax is much more versatile well hemp has to be blended with something you can't just like make clothes out of like straight hemp yeah you really can't i mean it's good it's great for rope it's Mm -hmm. great for sales sales. it's great for upholstery Uh right it's good for like very heavy duty things the old seed sacks were often made out of hemp it would probably make an awesome apron but flax is much more versatile you can do everything from like fine lace to upholstery going back just a little bit i want to ask the question and i honestly don't know this has flax been demonstrated to help with carbon sequestration and if not could we say that it helps with carbon sequestration and that it does not take the chemical inputs that we know contribute to carbon escape does that make sense Partly, yes. I think in terms of the carbon sequestration, yes, because it is growing the flax and, you know, it's a 30 to 36 inch plant. So that amount of plant material is drawing carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, which then it's an interesting plant because you pull it up and you make it into textiles. So it's it is capturing that you're not chopping it off and then it's all being released again into the atmosphere, you know? Yeah. So I think it does have huge potential you know pasture grasses and other perennial pastures those are the common the huge carbon sequestration plants because ruminants would go and plants would grow up and they'd be eating them and digesting them in their body the issue then is like emissions with animals which on a grass pasture level is not a huge issue it's more like a CAFO situation where that's a problem but and I- with the textile industry the processing of flax is so minimal there's not a lot of harmful outputs in the piece of the process that we are working to establish there are no chemicals used and no water used in the processing so to take the plant 
from field to spinnable fiber. It requires electricity, which could be solar. The spinning of it requires water. I don't know how much, but it's wet spun. And then like further processing of fabrics, like the spinning requires some water in this case, the weaving, no, but it does require humidity control to weave it. There's that. And then in terms of finishings, like then you get into like a whole nother thing. There's a reason why buying like unbleached, undyed, natural, untreated, not smooth and shiny. Like there's a reason why those fabrics are the most ecologically friendly. Like all of the finishings of fabric pretty much use chemicals. <laughs> so going back to sort of where you've been focusing your efforts currently, it's R&D to get the seed. So you want to you want to be able to produce your own seed so that you can plant you know, you don't have to buy a seed from anyone. And then you want to get it to the point where all the way up to the spinning. So in this this little phase, you've talked a lot about cart before the horse, but um, what is like the biggest, I know it's so multi-layered, but what's going to be like biggest challenge in getting you where you want to go? I think it's capital. <laughs> I think, honestly think there is enough support for major entities in the textile industry to jump on board once the equipment is in place. And I think there's enough farmers. You know, we haven't courted any farmers and we're getting emails that are just like, hey, I have 100 acres no-till. Can I grow flax? You know, that's just with our like tiny website and no easy. People are going to want to grow this and people already want domestic you guys are examples we're all examples people want domestically grown and produced textiles and so i really just think i mean maybe i'm naive but i think if we had the pile of money now things would move really fast <laughs> i don't think you are naive i think that's number one like i always say the only limiter to this project is money because i do not have five or ten million dollars sitting in the bank but if somebody listening does you join us on <laughs> And then the other challenge, which I think Emma and I are tackling really well, is this notion that all the things have to happen sort of simultaneously at a pace that where they keep up with each other. So, you know, we have told like large scale farmers who we've had meetings with who are really interested in growing, we've said, okay, great, we're going to save your information, but too much too soon. If you grow 200 acres of flax right now, we can't even hurt. Yeah. So you have to like be very careful that you bring the resources to bear at the proper time so that it ends up being a, a benefit to people and not a situation where people put in a lot of effort, lose their time, lose their money. Mm -hmm. get frustrated, right? In this first three years, without really realizing it, basically we were just networking. And now the project is in a position where we are, I think we're connected to what we need at this point. I think so too, yeah. With the exception of the capital. And I think that we're getting closer to that. Like we, we know farmers, we know we have potential seed sources for regionalizing a variety. We have potential partners to work with to do that. We have potential customers for sketch fiber at volume. So you're establishing a market, essentially a supply chain. And it's literally like we just need investors in the market to make it come to life. I keep going back to like, how is it unlike literally any other 
business or anything. I mean, it is like any other business. Yeah. It's much larger business, but the numbers are bigger. There's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. There's, you know, with any business though, it's like there's the supplier, there's the producer. They're just on very large scales. And Heidi and I are very interested in the cooperative model. So we want, you know, ideally there'd be a growth cooperative that's all feeding a sketch mill and our members of, you know, a larger organization making choices having a worker-owned mill. So that just takes a little more intention and time. We really want to partner with the people involved in this so it's resilient. Time is so ripe right now, especially just with, yeah, I mean, the state of the world has been cuckoo for a while now, but with the war in Ukraine and green shortages and yeah. the French president saying, you know, we're actually not going to adhere to these green protocols. We just need to produce. Like, let's put that away. And I feel like there's so much anxiety response right now is like, we need to, we need to like, yeah, counter and we need to produce. And part of that, I understand that, you know, I see where that's coming from. Absolutely. But going back to like the slow living aspect of this and how Heidi and I have been approaching this, if we don't do this in a way that protects our water, protects our air, protects our soil, protects our people, it's going to flop. And it's just like any other industry that's, you know, it's just would be supplanting another toxic industry. So I think we have to really move forward with intention. And that sometimes means slower. <laughs> That's a real challenge for us, Heidi and myself. I feel like internally is like the iron's hot. Let's strike. Let's do this now. And we need this to happen in the right way. <laughs> I don't know if y'all have had a chance to see the headlines this morning, but I think it's a New York Times is saying that the inflation rate is higher than it's been since the early 80s as of now and that the main problem with that is supply chain issues so to your point emma if suddenly they go oh my gosh we need to improve supply chains that means to domestic supplies let's hurry up and get this up and running you know here we go again you know big giant entities take over these things and we have more of the same to your point that you just made so yeah strike while the iron is hot the iron is very hot now concerning the supply chain issues and increasing public awareness of supply chain issues and then also not in any order these are just questions that i had as the discussion was going on you were talking about seed and geographically specific seed so i'm part of the square yard project i'm so excited i received my seed the other day and so this is a specific kind of seed for our region. I mean, we're not in Pennsylvania, but we're near fiber shed, so it counts. So the seed we're using, it's a seed from Holland, right? Is that what Natalie's from? Yeah. Yeah. And we discovered this seed through Landis Valley Museum, who's been using this seed variety for years to grow blacks out. So in year one, we purchased seed from them and it grew really well. So... We were like, okay, well, that's a good starting point. Like, let's start with this Natalie variety and see how well it grows in different micro regions. We've tried a couple different types too. One of them last year that was bred from Fiber Evolution in Oregon. I think it was grown in Montana. Is that true? They grew it up for seed in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's more adapted to that region and we didn't have great success with it. So we strayed away from that. It's so interesting because, you know, it takes a year to really try out or with flax, you know, at least three months. <laughs> but in that time, it's hard to have another planting. So I always say, like, as a farmer, I'm like, you know, I could be farming for a decade, but I've only grown potatoes 10 times in my life. You know, like <laughs> this stuff takes so long. 
I think that adds to that the slow living aspect of it too. I mean, what we are doing is we're basically re-establishing an industry here in pace with the world we live in, right? Which means if you're going to re-establish an agricultural textile source, you're going to do it in pace with the seasons, which means that each year you can make progress toward regionalizing a seed variety and that we could, if it were affordable, it, it, like grow out Natalie at scale here to use, which is not at all affordable, not by a long shot. Mm-hmm. But in order to regionalize a seed variety for ourselves, it's going to take us two or three years, and that's doing it just through selection. And so what's nice about that is that is also about how long it's going to take to refurbish a mill building and to figure out how to come up with the capital and import the equipment. And right. So it's like this seed is going to just keep us calm. Yes. <laughs> Can you grow the plant to the point that it goes to seed so that you can harvest the seed for the next season? Or do you have to harvest the plant before that for the sake of the fiber production? Or, or do you have to have two crops, one seed crop and one fiber crop? How do you do that? Exactly that. Two crops. Okay. Yeah. The ideal fiber is ready before the seed is ready. Interesting. You could have a coarser fiber after the seed is produced and use it not for fine textiles, which is totally definitely an application that can be used with these seed trials. But the linen that we're looking to produce is, yeah, you have to grow out seeds specifically for it. And going back way to the beginning that you mentioned, just to clarify, so currently flax is grown in the United States for flax seed, like to eat. Yeah, North Dakota is a major producer of flax, okay. mostly because the growing season is so short there. So flax is an awesome alternative for getting two crops in the ground. Like they can plant it, you know, early April, mm-hmm. probably there because it's so cold. And then they'll get in like a legume crop or something else afterwards. So yeah, the oil and the seed is definitely U.S. produced. The processing of that is so minimal. You know, it's like all you need is a combine, like any other small grain. The U.S. produces so much small grain and then it's just you know exporting cleaning it cleaning the seed and export. so why can't you just get fiber out of that too there's different varieties grown specifically for fiber versus seed like if you're growing for seed you want a variety that will produce a ton of seed oh and for fiber you want a very straight long stalk that's strong you also seed it at a very different rate. So if you're seeding for seed, it's about 60 pounds per acre, whereas it's 120 to 140 pounds per acre for fiber because you want all those stalks to be really close and limit weeds because you're not spraying them. <laughs> and the closer they grow, the taller and straighter the fiber is because they're kind of all like, it's like a stand of trees, you know, they're all kind of holding each other up. So even though it's the same plant, it's essentially a different crop and a totally different, a different variety. Yeah, it's a totally different process. It's a different seed variety. Yeah. Okay. So the seed that is grown for flax seed or oil won't produce a high quality fiber. Okay. Emma, you said something about could you use the varieties that they grow for seed to produce a coarser textile or is it just not going to work what do you think Heidi probably it's just it would still require the same process yeah right is there a way to combine props so that you get um, something that could you know could bring back Lindsay Woolsey oh it's so interesting so props are pretty specific to their use so if you plant a variety of plant that is better for seed than it is for fiber you'll get a good seed and a poor fiber 
Ah. And if you plant something that's good for fiber instead of seed, you'll get a fine fiber and poor seed production. It doesn't mean you can't get both out of a single crop. It just means that one is going to be your like economically viable crop. And the other is going to be like a byproduct. And because fiber requires so much specialized processing, it's not a great byproduct. So when you guys get this seed developed, I guess, you're like a little scientist. Are you going to like name it? It's going to be the Heidi. <laughs> the bar, the bar de long. Or the de long bar. <laughs> it's exciting this year that like so many people are helping us develop this seed. So Mary, you're one of like everybody in part as part of this square yard project, what John Ennis called it, citizen scientists. Mm-hmm. You are you are our citizen scientist brigade this year. Yeah, exciting. It's yeah. like crowdfunding. It's, it's it is. crowd research. Yeah. It's cool. I was going to interject another element into the experiment, and this is not something for everybody, but an experiment I'm doing in my garden this year is I'm trying as much as I can to plant by the signs. Of the moon. And I know it sounds really weird, but this is a tradition that was all over Appalachia where I grew up. And I was surrounded by it and the, the old timers swore by it. And of course, as a young person, I thought it was silly and wouldn't pay any attention to it. And now hardly anybody knows how to do it anymore. So I am scouring for resources and people who remember people who did it. It's really, you know, there's kind of a generation separating us from when it was widely practiced. And so I'm implementing this in my garden this year. And I've sorted in it halfway in other years, but this year I'm making more of an effort to really be, okay, I'm going to plant that flax on a day when the sign is favorable for not only planting above ground crops, but planting a flower. Now I say a flower because there's days that are favorable for planting above ground vegetables or fruits or flowers. And they're they're not all the same day. The Rudolf Steiner, the biodynamic calendar, right? Well, it's related. It's related, but this is more of a, I don't know where it comes from, but they, they certainly incorporate some of that. So anyway, to my knowledge, there's no recommendation for planting a fiber plant. So I'm going to go by the flower. I can go by the stock. I'll have to go in into that there might be one that's best for s- strong stalks I- i'm just thinking of the other biodynamic one. calendar there's like root stock fruit flower seed yeah tell us how it goes <laughs> that first crop we planted yeah. without any planning at all we planted it on a new moon so yeah mm-hmm. good it mm-hmm. is like the time to start things yeah which i just thought was kind of fortuitous we accidentally threw in the ground on a new moon. Oh, I love it. Cool. <laughs> well, look, we're here now. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. We still have flax yeah. straw in my barn that's being chewed apart by mice. <laughs> and that's another good thing is that you, you can keep it for a while as long as yeah. it's properly dried. Yeah, that's really interesting because part of the back to the hemp discussion, that's a huge problem in the hemp process is that it goes bad really quickly and it's just really hard to get all of the pieces in place for that to make any sense. Mm. Or I don't know that it necessarily goes bad if it's dried properly, but the problem has been that the growers don't have the facilities to dry it and store it mm. in a way that it will keep it. And they also don't have anywhere to take it, to your point, Heidi, earlier. like Because they don't have but, a processing. Yeah. Right. But there's no market. Right. Exporting straw is not economically like 
it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you're right. basically paying to ship yeah. air, right? You're paying yeah. for a container. So you're filling a container with straw. Even a compressed bale isn't worth it. Right. It's so much tonnage. Right. You need a sketch mill. Oh. Or in the case of have you need a decorticator. And then you also have to be, to be producing fiber of a quality that is marketable on the world market. Like we could throw flax in the ground. We could have grown out a couple hundred acres of flax. We could have figured out how to get a harvester, grown a bunch of acres of flax, harvested it and tried to sell the straw. But regionalizing a seed variety so that you end up with a high quality fiber is a very important first step because then you have a marketable mm. product. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that's what you need. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it just would take a little time. We've seen a lot of low quality hemp that hasn't been redded properly and is being decorticated and mm. it turns into a byproduct. It turns basically into dust mm. so you can grow it really? but it's, it's not just growing it out it's redding it i think the redding is really understated but you can't extract a long line fiber unless it's properly redded which takes some serious expertise yeah that's heidi's job she's gonna yeah. be the redding flax fairy <laughs> that's, that's my requirement well, gigs. I would like to be a flax fairy. <laughs> well, during our conversation with the chico flax folks uh, we talked a lot about redding and how you know, they live in a super dry climate and they're having to like manufacture dew for the redding. And it's all very, very fascinating. They're putting out a really great effort. <laughs> yeah, they explain it in detail. We'll link that episode in these show notes. Another thing I wanted to say, just to bring the conversation full circle, is like this whole journey with you, Emma, started out as you were, you had an idea for a linen wedding dress. And Lady Farmer also has a dream of creating a linen wedding dress as an alternative to the crazy overpriced fast wedding fashion industry that's insane. And how cool, oh, how marvelous and delicious and wonderful it would be to be able to offer beautiful, elegant, simple wedding dresses at a fraction of the cost from local fiber, low chemical input, the good dirt. We're talking about a good dirt wedding dress. Is that <laughs> low? Yeah, it's it's exciting like story behind it too. It's like there's this fiber that grew from this location where you know maybe people are yeah. creating a union together and getting and there's a ceremony around mm -hmm. it. And it's just like that's what I when I sought out Heidi, I was like I so badly want a connection and every aspect of my wedding to be meaningful. And the ceremonial garb, the wedding dress is such a big that. Yes. And that really came from, for me, an interest in natural dyeing and indigo specifically and kind of the same concept, but on a smaller scale as the PA Flax project of like, what if we converted cropland like tobacco in Lancaster and soy and corn to indigo production kind of like stony creek colors is doing in tennessee cerebellos that has a real market too so the indigo and the like the cultural and ancestral spiritual uh. side of that dying practice and that plant this like mystic plant i kind of transitioned into fiber because i was like this is something that could be meaningful on such a large scale plant wise mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. we need it all like, let's do it all. Yeah. <laughs> but this could make a really big change. Oh, it's such a vibrant idea. It really lights me up uh, what you were saying about the meaning and the connection behind the clothing of any kind of ceremony. Think about, you know, baptism clothes or, you know, right. burial. I already have a friend who's like, you better 
hurry up because I'm not going to live forever and I need a shroud for me for my <laughs> burial. He wants a Pennsylvania linen shroud. <laughs> oh, I just think that's so beautiful. So I'm working on it. It's, it's a big experiment, but some friends of Emma's are getting married next month and we're experimenting with dyeing the ties with comfrey. They thought that would be very special. So it's kind of a goldy green thing. And they want exactly what you're describing. Just, you know, something a little, you know, has a little more meaning than just getting stuff Absolutely. from the wedding somewhere yeah. out there. And that's yeah. going to along. Maybe when you guys renew your vows at 10 years. Yay. Yeah, what dress did you end up wearing if Heidi didn't make it, couldn't get it together? I just bought a dress off the internet, yeah. you know? It was whatever. <laughs> it looked good. Yeah. <laughs> My husband dyed his vest in marigold, so Aww. it was beautiful. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> oh, wow. So I got married in 1983. I was already, like, not going to go the route of the big foofy things yep. that cost many thousands of dollars. And I found a little simple, it was probably, I don't know, cotton linen blend or something. This was 1983 before I had awareness really of any of this stuff. But I remember it cost me $70. And it was Gunny Sacks. I don't know if y'all remember that mm-hmm. brand. And I still have it. It's it's It was just so beautiful and so perfect. It had little pearl buttons. It was just so sweet. I was just so happy to not have... Yeah. bought into all that other stuff yeah. it's really made me happy and, like that's that feeling that you have from that i just feel like if people made the shift from needing more to needing quality it's just yeah. like it's with anything i mean heidi's business you, you joke all the time you're like i think i'm like putting myself out of business because it's so high it's so long like what do you need to buy another <laughs> napkin <laughs> But that kind of mentality of like, okay, well, I could go to Target and get five shirts or I could spend the same on one shirt mm-hmm. and it mean a lot and be really potent in a different way and <laughs> pass it on and then compost it when yeah. you're done. You know, it's like if we could just those shifts yeah, every aspect of our life, that's where the change comes from. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the disconnect is in how we're marketed to and we actually have forgotten or some of us might not have ever been aware of that gap in quality versus quantity versus what you are capable of and empowered to source and find yourself or make yourself. We're not trained to do that. We're trained to buy things. Mm -hmm. So that's why we're doing the good dirt. (laughs) Like literally. Exactly. And like you, Heidi, we, you know, the things we sell, it's not a good model. Uh, You know, we're trying to sell people the idea of not buying stuff. (laughs) I mean, it's also selling the idea of buying yeah quality like i think generationally like probably for two and a half maybe three generations we've pretty much been sort of cheated out of valuing yeah. quality right you know, like mm-hmm. quality is luxury like not it's like having one really great thing is so luxurious yes right and um we've really been yeah cheated out of that by you know, the marketing machine and the fast consumption machine. Yeah. And when you start to turn back to that and look for quality in everything you bring into your life, you start to feel that luxury again. And you're like, oh, I feel yeah. better. Yeah. Isn't it just so strange? Put that up. <laughs> it is from. 
I think that's the pivotal point because you're cheated out of quality. But the part that makes me so sad about that is that we're cheated out of connection because you yeah. you get these like, you know, I scroll through Instagram, whatever, and I see high quality, all natural linen shirt for $30 or like super cheap. And I'm like, uh-huh. okay, you can have a really good heart and be like, I care about all natural. I care about natural fibers and sustainable methods. But then you don't have the connection of where that product is coming from. <laughs> and that's what companies try to do. They try to disconnect you from the source. So I think getting back to the source and asking those questions and knowing your producers are making it yourself. Mm -hmm. That's what feeds us. And that's what builds reciprocity, you know, where it's like, oh, you're doing this for me. I want to do something really special for the world too. Yeah. I think it also leads to us valuing one another. Like, well, now I'm going to start talking about how we have to remake the economic system, but we know we have to do. And because none of this actually works if we have such an unequitable valuation of good yeah. it just doesn't work and i think that when you do reconnect with your producers you start to value them because they're people standing in front of you and then you're paying them doesn't seem like a bad idea it seems like a good idea Right. Paying them well, even. Right. Like having them survive seems like good idea. Yeah. (laughs) If they're standing in front of you, right? If they're on the other side of the world, you can shut that out a little bit more easily. That disconnection is what causes destruction. And I think like this work that Emma and I are doing at the Pennsylvania Flux Project is really all about reconnecting to source. Like what I learned, what I think we learned in that first year is how unbelievably arduous and magical it is to literally pull a yard of cloth yeah Mm -hmm. right and like when you get that it's like oh everything is different now Mm -hmm. everything yeah i love that so much and from the beginning of lady farmer our sort of thesis has been that between us and ourselves and everything we use and need every day there's an entire industry there's oceans and giant corporations and conglomerations. And we don't even have the opportunity to be connected unless we're very, very intentional about going around all that systemic stuff. And it certainly was not easy six years ago. I think it's becoming a little more of a concept now for people like to develop this connection you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And because of that, I'd like to end something you said just a minute ago, Emma, like, all over Instagram, all their quality, this quality, that. I would venture to say that the word quality has become overused, kind of like natural and sustainable even, and all these words that kind of lose their meaning and they're overused. I feel like quality is in that category because people think, and when they think quality, they think that something's really good, that they're still thinking, get it for as cheaply as possible. Yeah, it's abstract. Yeah, they're not thinking in terms of I need to pay more for something that has meaning, is not degenerative to the earth, is not bad for my health. You know, they're just, people just kind of aren't there yet on That's sort of what Heidi was saying about the valuing the producers and the people and the relationships is like, it's the same with the product, valuing the product. Yeah, of course, we all want to pay less money for stuff. But it's kind of like, what if we actually question that? I like to say we want people to say, instead of saying, why is this so expensive? We want them to say, why is this so cheap? (laughs) And be very suspicious of that. Quality also 
people assume it means it lasts a long time. And a lot of times it does mean it lasts a long time. But when you're talking about a natural fabric, sometimes it means that it wears out and because it doesn't have plastic in it. It doesn't have chemicals in it. And we want people to understand that that's okay. If you have to put something in your compost because it got to the end of its life, that's so much, you know, maybe you paid, say, $10 for a dishcloth that you used and it was beautiful and you had all the beautiful linen qualities, antimicrobial properties and all that. And it was done and you could put it in your compost. That's so much better than, you know, having a $5 one that has plastic in it that God knows what was used in its production and is going to sit in a landfill for yeah. ever. But that's a lot of hoops and thinking for people. And yeah. it's not convenient. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not in our fast paced world. Yeah. I mean, it takes practice. I feel like that the mindfulness of knowing like we are inseparable from every single thing we use every day, even if we're ignorant of it. You look at your coffee right. cup and you're like, okay, if I really ask the questions of where every component of this came from, it would probably span continents you know <laughs> like huge story yeah and the reality is if you trace it back to like the very compounds of the clay from the soil that it came from it's like you're part of that also mm-hmm. however distant it seems from us our phones you know i look at my phone i'm like where did this come from <laughs> like i have no idea yeah. any of the steps involved with this and that's horrifying Heard right elements of everything like you're connected to that and it affects you <laughs> but we don't want to think about that because it's just like Oh, I need to scroll through my phone for something. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to think about it, which is exactly why we yeah. we we need to talk about it. And even in, in the examples of our, you know, our very own customers, a restaurant customer we had wanted to buy napkins for us that were locally made, natural fibers, organic, all the good stuff. Sold in these beautiful organic linen napkins. They were beautiful. They love them. They use them and wash them multiple times a day in bleach, even though I told them not to, but, you know, they had to get them clean. Over a year later, they came back and said, these are starting to unravel or whatever. And, you know, we'd like to buy them again, but, you know, we can't pay this price for things that aren't going to last more than a year. And I said, you can go on Amazon right now and get whatever you want for way cheaper than this, but it's not what you said you wanted a year ago. They're like, oh, you know. Yeah, maybe not washing and bleach every day. This is a huge learning curve in the whole thing for the consumer. It's interesting too, because that's the, you know, you say you want people to say, why is it so cheap instead of why is it so expensive? And in that, the story you were just telling, right, that they're saying, we can't pay this much for things that are only going to last a year. And really, we can't pay so little for things that are going to last forever. Yes. Yes, Heidi. I like that. I love that. I wanted to circle back and this will be a total non-sequitur at this point, but I found the document that I was looking for earlier that talks about manufacturing here. Yes. So this is Allie, who is working with us, volunteering with us, created this for our upcoming crowdsource funding campaign. And when she was looking into the history, she says textile manufacturing was once one of the largest industries in eastern Pennsylvania. From the late 1800s through the 1920s, Philadelphia and the surrounding areas supported a wide array of textile mills, manufacturing plants, and family farms growing flax and raising fiber animals. At its height, the textile industry supported roughly 700 individual businesses and family farms involved in manufacturing textiles from raw materials to finished products, which employed approximately 60,000 individuals. Wow. Yeah. Right? Is it, did you say it's a crowdfunding campaign? We are launching our crowdfunding campaign the week after next. Great. <laughs> okay, well, TBD, when this will come out, how long will it last? Until we, we get a pile. Okay, so it's sort of like <laughs> open. We have an initial goal of $50,000. Okay. 
with a stretch goal to pay for that harvester. Cool. I think what's interesting about this conversation that we're having and many of the conversations that we have on this podcast is that it's not about feeling guilty for what you are doing or have not done yet or like you're doing something wrong. It's not about buy the more expensive thing because it's better and guilt you into it. It's about choosing, it's about having the information for yourself so, and being empowered to choose what we all think because we've experienced it is ultimately happier, more fun, better in whatever ways that we have defined that and that we personally have found more fulfillment and more satisfaction on all of those things. So I don't know. That's hard language to articulate in a quick Instagram post or a marketing campaign. But I really think that's important that we get that if we're going to get anywhere, because I think that guilt a lot of times actually shuts people down or they want to look the other way or something. And we can talk all day about the dire straits that we're in and all of that. But I think that keeping the conversation free from that is important too to get anywhere. Yep. Absolutely. And I think what you're getting at, Emma, there to just expand a little bit on what you're saying is when you do start making these choices and experience what that feels like, it's almost like a little bit of healing, a little bit at a time. And we all know that when we feel anxiety and despair over what's happening to the earth and, you know, that really doesn't get us anywhere. That's just a bad feeling. But to take these actions, even though it doesn't maybe move the needle in a major way, for us, it just helps a little bit inside. And each time you do it, it helps a little more and a little more. And it sort of grows within you to where you are always making those choices or as much as you possibly can, because that's what feels good and feels right. Yeah. And I would argue that it may seem and like literally, you know, the needle may not be moving a huge amount with one little choice, but collectively, if we all are making this different mindset change, even if it's just like a mindset change and then you make one physical change or something, you know, you make one different purchase, that does matter. It has such huge effects. And mm -hmm. I'm reminded by that every time I go to the farmer's market, because I'm like, whoa, if half of these people decided not to come out, I wouldn't be able to afford this, this, and this this year, yeah. right? you know, it's because 20 people buy a pound of tomatoes that I can like pay for my pet food, you know, yeah. <laughs> it really, really matters. And I know with Heidi too, the orders that come in, if there's several less orders in a month, that's devastating. So I think putting the power in people's hands too, of like, even if it's making a decision not to buy something, that's a huge vote. Sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You don't have to buy anything to do this. You can buy nothing and do a great job. <laughs> so one, the Flash Project makes me very happy. Mm -hmm. Like from the very beginning, mm -hmm. it's made me very happy. Meeting Emma made me very happy. Going out to that farm and putting the seed on the ground was actually one of my happiest mm -hmm. memories. It was very joyful. And the project, even when it's hard and we're mired down and like, oh, are you going to find an hour to work on our business plan? It still is a very celebratory project and people that mm -hmm. participate with us get that too. And I think that's part of this whole having information to make decisions that are going to have a positive impact. It makes you happy. Who doesn't want yeah. that, right? 
I get that from you guys. I get that the the Flags Project is a very joyful thing. That comes through. It's so funny. I always think about our very first episode is with our an interview with our friend Amy Dufault, who does a lot of work with Kathy Hattori at Botanical Colors and Fiber Shed. She's really active in her Fiber Shed New England. She's very funny and she has this dry sense of humor. And, you know, you ask her, you know, why do you think, what's the root of the overconsumption and what's the problem here? And she's just like meaninglessness. It all goes back to meaningless. Like we just... <laughs> We buy things because we are looking for meaning. And when we live life in more of the way that we've been talking about here and we're talking about finding joy, it's like, there's your meaning. Then you don't have to do retail therapy. You know, what's the good dirt mean to you? It's a good question. <laughs> I think when I think of good dirt, I just, I automatically think of soil. I'm like, what is good dirt? Oh, soil which is like this living, breathing, life-giving medium. And dirt, like as a farmer, the word dirt has like negative connotations where it's like, it's not dirt, it's yeah. soil. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also that side of dirt where it's like the good stuff, like digging in, you know, yeah. like what's the dirt? And yeah, I think just like, to me, good dirt, it's you nourish it, you care for it, whatever it may be. And in turn, it nourishes and cares for you. So yeah. This act of like reciprocity is meaningful. Yeah, I would Thank say you. building on that pun intended here, I would say the good dirt is the foundation yeah. of which like everything else emerges, quite literally the planet. It's baffling, it's isn't it? This has been really fun. Thank you so much, Heidi and Emma, for coming on and talking to us about the Pennsylvania Flax Project and the Square Yard Project, which I'm participating in. I'm really excited. And so thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And we'll be in touch. I'll be letting you know how it's going. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>